Curiosities. I remain, as always, your humble host, Osgood. It's time to break out the champagne. I just realized that this episode would be our 100th broadcast. This project started out at about this time in the year 2010. Never mind that it took us 10 years to produce 100 episodes. At my age, I'm in no hurry to get anywhere. As if I could go anywhere. Back when we started out, the program was not a podcast per se, but part of the literary programming at Radio Riel, which provided music streams to the 19th century regions of the Second Life Virtual World Grid. Our audience back in those days consisted of a dozen or so avatars drinking pixelated pints of beer in their hand-built pubs and taverns. It was considered edgy behavior back then, I'll have you know, ladies and gentlemen, although now with the pandemic it's become rather mundane. Our early stories were sourced from online and public domain archives. We only started buying original manuscripts in late 2015, primarily because it became too much of a chore to find appropriate material in the public domain that was not too done. The current format, hosted by yours truly, began in early 2016. So, in honor of our centennial episode, here is the very first story we ever aired. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's The Horror of the Heights from the Strand Magazine of November 1913. Read for you by Mr. Vic Mullen. The idea that the extraordinary narrative, which has been called the Joyce Armstrong Fragment, is an elaborate practical joke evolved by some unknown person, cursed by a perverted and sinister sense of humour, has now been abandoned by all who have examined the matter. The most macabre and imaginative of plotters would hesitate before linking his morbid fantasies with the unquestioned and tragic facts which reinforce the statement. Though the assertions contained in it are amazing, and even monstrous, it is nonetheless forcing itself upon the general intelligence that they are true, and that we must readjust our ideas to the new situation. This world of ours appears to be separated by a slight and precarious margin of safety from a most singular and unexpected danger. I will endeavour, in this narrative which reproduces the original document in its necessarily somewhat fragmentary form, to lay before the reader the whole of the facts up to date, prefacing my statement by saying that if there be any who doubt the narrative of Joyce Armstrong, there can be no question at all as to the facts concerning Lieutenant Myrtle and Mr Hay Connor, who undoubtedly met their end in the manner described. 
The Joyce Armstrong fragment was found in the field which is called Lower Haycock, lying one mile to the westward of the village of Withyham, upon the Kent and Wessex border. It was on the 15th of September last that an agricultural labourer, James Flynn, in the employment of Matthew Dodd of the Chantry Farm Withyham, perceived a briar pipe lying near the footpath which skirts the edge in Lower Haycock. A few paces farther on he picked up a pair of broken binocular glasses. Finally, among some nettles in the ditch, he caught sight of a flat, canvas-backed book, which proved to be a notebook with detachable leaves, some of which had come loose and were fluttering along the base of the hedge. These he collected, but some, including the first, were never recovered, and leave a deplorable hiatus in this all-important statement. The notebook was taken by the labourer to his master, who in turn showed it to Dr. J. H. Atherton of Hartfield. This gentleman at once recognised the need for an expert examination, and the manuscript was forwarded to the Aero Club in London, where it now lies. The first two pages of the manuscript are missing. There is also one torn away at the end of the narrative, though none of these affect the general coherence of the story. It is conjectured that the missing opening is concerned with the record of Mr Joyce Armstrong's qualifications as an aeronaut, which can be gathered from other sources and are admitted to be unsurpassed among the air pilots of England. For many years he has been looked upon as among the most daring and the most intellectual of flying men, a combination which has enabled him to both invent and test several new devices, including the common gyroscopic attachment which is known by his name. The main body of the, atta- of the manuscript is written neatly in ink, but the last few lines are in pencil and are so ragged to be hardly legible. Exactly, in fact, as they might be expected to appear if they were scribbled off hurriedly from the seat of a moving aeroplane. There are, it may be added, several stains, both on the last page and on the outside cover, which have been pronounced by the Home Office experts to be blood, probably human and certainly mammalian. The fact that something closely resembling the organism of malaria was discovered in this blood, and that Joyce Armstrong is known to have suffered from intermittent fever, is a remarkable example of the new weapons which modern science has placed in the hands of our detectives. And now a word as to the personality of the author of this epoch-making statement. Joyce Armstrong, according to the few friends who really knew something of the man, was a poet and a dreamer, as well as a mechanic and an inventor. He was a man of considerable wealth, much of which he had spent in the pursuit of his aeronautical hobby. He had four private aeroplanes in his hangars near Devise, and it is said to have made no fewer than 170 ascents in the course of last year. He was a retiring man with dark moods in which he would avoid the society of his fellows. Captain Dangerfield, who knew him better than anyone, says that there were times when his eccentricity threatened to develop into something more serious. His habit of carrying a shotgun with him on his airplane was one such manifestation of it. Another was the morbid effect which the fall of Lieutenant Myrtle had upon his mind. Myrtle! who was attempting the height record, fell from an altitude of something over 30,000 feet. 
horrible to narrate, his head was entirely obliterated, though his body and limbs preserved their configuration. At every gathering of airmen, Joyce Armstrong, according to Dangerfield, would ask with an enigmatic smile, And where, pray, is Myrtle's head? On another occasion after dinner at the mess of the flying school on Salisbury Plain, he started a debate as to what will be the most permanent danger which airmen will have to encounter. Having listened to successive opinions as to air pockets, faulty construction and over-banking, he ended by shrugging his shoulders and refusing to put forward his own views, though he gave the impression that they differed from any advanced by his companions. It is worth remarking that after his own complete disappearance, it was found that his private affairs were arranged with a precision which may show that he had a strong premonition of disaster. With these essential explanations, I will now give the narrative exactly as it stands, beginning at page 3 of the blood-soaked notebook. Nevertheless, when I dined in Reims with Caselli and Gustave Raymond, I found that neither of them was aware of any particular danger in the higher layers of the atmosphere. I did not actually say what was in my thoughts, but I got so near to it that if they had any corresponding data, they could have not failed to express it. But then they are two empty, vainglorious fellows with no thought beyond seeing their silly names in the newspaper. It is interesting to note that neither of them had ever been much beyond the 20,000 foot level. Of course, men have been higher than this, both in balloons and in the ascent of mountains. It must be well above that point that the aeroplane enters the danger zone, always presuming that my premonitions are correct. Aeroplanes has been with us now for more than 20 years, and one might well ask why should this peril only be revealing itself in our day? The answer is obvious. In the old days of weak engines, when a hundred horsepower Norman Green were considered ample for every need, the flights were very restricted. Now that 300 horsepower is the rule rather than the exception, visits to the upper layers have become easier and more common. Some of us can remember how, in our youth, Garros made a worldwide reputation by attaining 19,000 feet and it was considered a remarkable achievement to fly over the Alps. Our standard now has been immeasurably raised, and there are 20 high flights for one in former years. Many of them have been undertaken with impunity. The 30,000 foot level has been reached time after time with no discomfort beyond cold and asthma. What does this prove? A visitor might descend upon this planet a thousand times and never see a tiger. Yet, tigers exist, and if he chanced to come down into a jungle, he might be devoured. There are jungles of the upper air, and there are worse things than tigers which inhabit them. I believe in time they will map these jungles accurately out. Even at the present moment I could name two of them. One of them lies over the Pau Biarritz district of France. Another is just over my head, 
as I write here in my house in Wiltshire. I rather think there is a third in the Holmberg Weisbieden district. It was the disappearance of the airmen that first set me thinking. Of course, everyone said they had fallen into the sea, but that that did not satisfy me at all. First there was Verrier in France, his machine was found near Bayonne, but they never got his body. There was the case of Baxter also, who vanished, though his engine and some of the iron fixings were found in a wood in Leicestershire. In that case, Dr Middleton of Amesbury, who was watching the flight with a telescope, declares that just before the clouds obscured the view, he saw the machine, which was at an enormous height, suddenly rise perpendicularly upwards in a succession of jerks, in a manner that he thought would have been impossible. That was the last scene of Baxter. There was a correspondence in the papers, but it never led to anything. There were several other similar cases, and then there was the death of Hay Connor. What a cackle there was about an unsolved mystery of the air and what columns in the halfpenny papers, and yet how little was ever done to get to the bottom of the business. He came down in a tremendous volplane from an unknown height. He never got off his machine and died in his pilot's seat. Died of what? Heart disease, said the doctors. Rubbish. Hey, Connor's heart was as sound as mine is. What did Venables say? Venables was the only man who was at his side when he died. He said that he was shivering and looked like a man who had been badly scared. Died of fright, said Venables, but could not imagine what he was frightened about. Only said one word to Venables, which sounded like monstrous. They could make nothing of that at the inquest. But I could make something of it. Monsters. It was the last word of poor Harry Hay Connor, and he did die of fright, just as Venables thought. And then there was Myrtle's head. Do you really believe, does anybody really believe that a man's head could be driven clean into his body by the force of a fall? Well, perhaps it may be possible, but I, for one, have never believed that it was so with Myrtle. And the grease upon his clothes, all slimy with grease, said somebody at the inquest. Queer that nobody got thinking after that. I did, but then... I've been thinking for a good long time. I've made three ascents. How Dangerfield used to chaff me about my shotgun, but I've never been high enough. Now, with this new light Paul Veroni machine that is 175 rober, I could easily touch the 30,000 tomorrow. I'll have a shot at the record. Maybe I'll have a shot at something else as well. Of course it's dangerous. If a fellow wants to avoid danger, he'd best keep out of flying altogether and subside finally into flannel slippers and a dressing gown. But I'll visit the air jungle tomorrow. And if there's anything there, I shall know. If I return, I'll find myself a bit of a celebrity. If I don't, this notebook may explain what I'm trying to do. 
and how I lost my life in doing it. But no drivel about accidents or mysteries, if you please. I chose my Paul Veroni machine for the job. There's nothing like a monoplane when real work has to be done. Beaumont found that out in the very early days. For one thing, it doesn't mind damp, and the weather looks as if we should be in the clouds all the time. It's a bonny little model and answers my hand like a tender-mouthed horse. The engine is a ten-cylinder rotary rover, working up to 175. It has all the modern improvements, enclosed fuselage, high-curved landing skids, brakes, gyroscopic steadiers, and three speeds, worked by an alteration of the angle of the planes upon the Venetian blind principle. I took a shotgun with me, and a dozen cartridges filled with buckshot. You should have seen the face of Perkins, my old mechanic, when I directed him to put them in. I was dressed like an Arctic explorer, with two jerseys under my overalls, thick socks inside my padded boots, a storm cap with flaps, and my talc goggles. It was stifling outside the hangars, but I was going for the summit of the Himalayas, and had to dress for the part. Perkins knew there was something on, and implored me to take him with me. Perhaps I should, if I was using the biplane. But a monoplane is a one-man show, if you want to get the last foot of life out of it. Of course, I took an oxygen bag. The man who goes for the altitude record without one will either be frozen, or smothered, or both. I had a good look at the planes, the rudder bar and the elevating lever before I got in. Everything was in order as far as I could see. Then I switched on my engine and found that she was running sweetly. When they let her go, she rose almost at once upon the lowest speed. I circled my home field once or twice just to warm her up. And then, with a wave to Perkins and the others, I flattened out my planes and put her on the highest. She skimmed like a swallow, downwind for eight or ten miles, until her turned her nose up a little, and she began to climb in a great spiral for the cloud bank above me. It's all important to rise slowly and adapt yourself to the pressure as you go. It was a close, warm day for an English September, and there was the hush and heaviness of impending rain. Now and then there came sudden puffs of wind from the southwest. One of them got so gusty and unexpected that it caught me napping and turned me half round for an instant. I remember the time when gusts and whirls and air pockets used to be things of danger, before we learned to put an overmastering power into our engines. Just as I reached the cloud banks with the altimeter marking 3,000, down came the rain. My word, how it poured. It drummed upon my wings and lashed against my face, blurring my glasses so that I could hardly see. I got down to a low speed, for it was painful to travel against it. As I got higher, it became hail, and I had to turn tail into it. One of my cylinders was out of action. A dirty plug, I should imagine. But still, I was rising steadily with plenty of power. After a bit, the trouble passed, whatever it was. I heard the full, deep-throated purr. The ten, singing as one. That's where the beauty of our modern silencers come in. 
we can at last control our engines by ear. How they squeal and squeak and squab when they are in trouble. All those cries for help were wasted in the old days when every sound was swallowed up by the monstrous racket of the machine. If only the early aviators could come back to see the beauty and perfection of the mechanism which have been bought at the cost of their lives. About 9.30, I was nearing the clouds. Down below me, all blurred and shadowed with rain, lay the vast expanse of Salisbury Plain. Half a dozen flying machines were doing hack work at the thousand-foot level, looking like little black swallows against the green background. I dare say they were wondering what I was doing up in cloudland. Suddenly, a grey curtain drew across beneath me and the wet folds of vapour were swirling around my face. It was clamorly cold and miserable, but I was above the hailstorm, and that was something gained. The cloud was a dark and thick as a London fog, and my anxiety to get clear, I cocked her nose up until the automatic alarm bell rang. I actually began to slide backwards. My socked and dripping wings had made me heavier than I thought. But presently, I was in lighter cloud, and soon had cleared the first layer. There was a second, opal-coloured and fleecy, at a great height above my head, a white, unbroken ceiling above, and a dark, unbroken floor below, with the monoplane labouring upwards upon a vast spiral between them. It is deadly lonely in these cloud spaces. Once a great flight of some small water birds went past me, flying very fast to the westwards. The quick whir of their wings and their musical cry were cheery to my ear. I fancy that they were teal, but I'm a wretched zoologist. Hmm. Now that we humans have become birds, we must really learn to know our brethren by sight. The wind down beneath me swirled and swayed the broad cloud plain. Once a great eddy formed in it, a whirlpool of vapour, and through it, as down a funnel, I caught sight of the distant world. A large white biplane was passing at a vast depth beneath me. I fancy it was the morning mail service betwixt Bristol and London. Then the drift swirled inwards again, and the great solitude was unbroken. Just after ten, I touched the lower edge of the upper cloud stratum. It consisted of fine diaphanous vapour drifting swiftly from the westwards. The wind had been steadily rising all this time, and it was now blowing a sharp breeze. Twenty-eight an hour by my gauge, Already it was very cold, although my altimeter only marked 9,000. The engines were working beautifully, and we went droning steadily upwards. The cloud bank was thicker than I had expected, but at last it thinned out into a golden mist before me, and then in an instant I had shot out from it, and there was an unclouded sky and a brilliant sun above my head, all blue and gold above all shining silver below, one vast glimmering plain as far as my eyes could reach. It was quarter past ten o'clock, and the barograph needle pointed to 12,800. 
Up I went, and up, my ears concentrated upon the deep purring of my motor, my eyes always busy with the watch, the revolution indicator, the petrol lever, and the oil pump. No wonder aviators are said to be a fearless race. With so many things to think of, there is no time to trouble about oneself. About this time, I noticed how unreliable the compass is when above a certain height from the earth. At 15,000 feet, mine was pointing east and a point south. The sun and the wind gave me my true bearings. I had hoped to reach an eternal stillness in these high altitudes, but with every thousand feet of ascent, the gale grew stronger. My machine groaned and trembled in every joint and rivet as she faced it, and swept away like a sheet of paper when I banked her on the tum, skimming downwind at a greater pace, perhaps than ever mortal man has moved. Yet, I had always to turn again and tack up in the wind's eye, for it was not merely a height record that I was after. By all my calculations, it was above Little Wiltshire that my air jungle lay, and with all my labour might be lost if I struck the outer layers at some further point. When I reached the 19,000 foot level, which was about midday, the wind was so severe that I looked with some anxiety to the stays of my wings, expecting momentarily to see them snap or slacken. I even cast loose the parachute behind me and fastened its hook into the ring of my leathern belt so as to be ready for the worst. Now was the time when a bit of scamped work by the mechanic is paid for by the life of the aeronaut, but she held together bravely. Every cord and strut was humming and vibrating like so many harp strings. But it was glorious to see how, for all the beating and buffeting, she was still the conqueror of nature and the mistress of the sky. There is surely something divine in man himself that she should rise so superior to the limitations which creation seemed to impose. Rise too by such unselfish, heroic devotion as this air conquest has shown. Talk of human degeneration? When has such a story been written in the annals of our race? These were the thoughts in my head as I climbed that monstrous inclined plane, with the wind sometimes beating my face and sometimes whistling behind my ears, while the cloudland beneath me fell away to such a distance that the folds and hummocks of silver had all smoothed out into one flat, shining plain. But suddenly, I had a horrible and unprecedented experience. I have known before what it is to be in what our neighbours have called a turbulent, but never on such a scale as this. That huge, sweeping river of wind, of which I have spoken, had, as it appears, whirlpools within it, which were as monstrous as itself. Without a moment's warning, I was dragged suddenly into the heart of one. I spun around for a minute or two with such velocity that I almost lost my senses, and then fell suddenly, left wing foremost, down the vacuum funnel in the centre. I dropped like a stone, and lost nearly a thousand feet. 
It was only my belt that kept me in my seat, and the shock and breathlessness left me hanging half insensible over the side of the fuselage. But I am always capable of a supreme effort. It is my one great merit as an aviator. I was conscious that the descent was slower. The whirlpool was a cone rather than a funnel, and I had come to the apex. With a terrific wrench throwing my weight all to one side, I levelled my planes and brought her head away from the wind. In an instant, I had shot out of the eddies and was skimming down the sky. Then, shaken but victorious, I turned her nose up and began once more my steady grind on the upward spiral. I took a large sweep to avoid the danger spot of the whirlpool, and soon I was safely above it. Just after one o'clock, I was 21,000 feet above the sea level. To my great joy, I had topped the gale. With every hundred feet of ascent, the air grew stiller. On the other hand, it was very cold and I was conscious of that peculiar nausea which one gets with rarefication of the air. For the first time, I unscrewed the mouth of my oxygen bag and took an occasional whiff of the glorious gas. I could feel it running like a cordial through my veins, and I was exhilarated almost to the point of drunkenness. I shouted and sang as I soared upwards into the cold, still outer world. It's very clear to me that the insensibility which came upon Glacier, and the lesser degree upon Coxwell, when, in 1862, they ascended in a balloon to the height of 30,000 feet, was due to the extreme speed with which a perpendicular ascent is made. Doing it at an easy gradient, and accustoming oneself to the lessened barometric pressure by slow degrees, there are no such dreadful symptoms. At the same great height, I found that even without my oxygen inhaler, I could breathe without undue distress. It was bitterly cold, however, and my thermometer was at zero Fahrenheit. At 1.30, I was nearly seven miles above the surface of the earth, and still ascending steadily. I found, however, that the rarefied air was giving markedly less support to my planes and that my angle of ascent had to be considerably lowered in consequence. It was already clear that even with my light weight and strong engine power, there was a point in front of me where I should be held. To make matters worse, one of my sparking plugs was in trouble again and there was the intermittent misfiring in the engine. My heart was heavy with the fear of failure. It was about that time that I had the most extraordinary experience. Something whizzed past me in a trail of smoke and exploded with a loud hissing sound, sending forth a cloud of steam. For the instant, I could not imagine what had happened. Then I remembered that the earth is forever being bombarded by meteor stones, and would be hardly inhabitable if they were not in nearly every case turned into vapour in the outer layers of the atmosphere. Here is a new danger for the high altitude man, 
for two others past me when I was nearing the 40,000 foot mark. I cannot doubt that at the edge of the Earth's envelope, the risk would be a very real one. My barograph needle marked 41,300 when I became aware that I could go no further. Physically, the strain was not as yet greater than I could bear, but my machine had reached its limit. The attenuated air gave no firm support to the wings and the least tilt developed into side slip, while she seemed sluggish in her controls. Possibly, had the engine been at its best, another thousand feet might have been within her capacity, but it was still misfiring, and two out of the ten cylinders appeared to be out of action. If I had not already reached the zone for which I was searching, then I should never see it upon this journey. But was it not possible that I had attained it? Soaring in circles like a monstrous hawk upon the 40,000 foot level, I let the monoplane guide herself, and with my Mannheim glass I made a careful observation of my surroundings. The heavens were perfectly clear, and there was no indication of those dangers which I had imagined. I have said that as I was soaring in circles, it struck me suddenly that I could do well to take a wider sweep and open up a new air tract. If the hunter entered an earth jungle, he would dive through it if he wished to find his game. My reasoning had led me to believe that the air jungle which I had imagined lay somewhere over Wiltshire. This should be to the south and west of me. I took my bearings from the sun, for the compass was hopeless, with no trace of earth was to be seen. Nothing but the distant silver cloud plain. However, I got my direction as best I might, and kept her head straight to the mark. I reckoned that my petrol supply would not last for more than an hour or so, but I could afford to use it to the last drop, since a single magnificent vol plane could at any time take me to the earth. Suddenly, I was aware of something new. The air in front of me had lost its crystal clearness. It was full of long, ragged wisps of something which I can only compare to very fine cigarette smoke. It hung about in wreaths and coils, turning and twisting slowly in the sunlight. As the monoplane shot through it, I was aware of a faint taste of oil upon my lips, and there was a greasy scum upon the woodwork of the machine. Some infinitely fine organic matter appeared to be suspended in the atmosphere. There was no life there. It was inchoate and diffuse, extending for many square acres and then fringing off into the void. No, it was not life. But might it not be the remains of life? Above all, might it not be the food of life, of monstrous life even, as the humble grease of the ocean is the food for the mighty whale? The thought was in my mind when my eyes looked upwards and I saw the most wonderful vision that man has seen. Can I hope to convey it to you even as I saw it myself last Thursday? Conceive a jellyfish, such as sails in our summer seas, bell-shaped 
and of enormous size, far larger, I should judge, than the dome of St. Paul's. It was of a light pink colour, veined with a delicate green, but the whole huge fabric so tenuous that it was but a fairy outline against the dark blue sky. It pulsated with a delicate and regular rhythm. From there, it depended two long, drooping green tentacles, which swayed slowly backwards and forward. This gorgeous vision passed gently, with noiseless dignity, over my head, as light and fragile as a soap bubble, and drifted upon its stately way. I had half turned my monoplane that I might look upon this beautiful creature when, in a moment, I found myself amidst a perfect fleet of them, of all sizes, but none so large as the first. Some were quite small, but the majority about as big as an average balloon, and with much the same curvature at the top. There was in them a delicacy of texture and colouring which reminded me of the finest Venetian glass. Pale shades of pink and green were the prevailing tints, but all had a lovely iridescence where the sun shimmered through their dainty forms. Some hundreds of them drifted past me, a wonderful fairy squadron of strange, unknown argosies of the sky, creatures whose forms and substance were so attuned to these pure heights that one could not conceive anything so delicate within actual sight or sound of earth. But soon my attention was drawn to a new phenomenon, the serpents of the outer air. These were long, thin, fantastic coils of vapour-like material, which turned and twisted with great speed, flying round and round at such a pace that the eyes could hardly follow them. Some of these ghost-like creatures were twenty or thirty feet long, but it was difficult to tell their girth, for the outline was so hazy that it seemed to fade away into the air around them. These air snakes were of a very light grey and smoke colour, with some darker lines within, which gave the impression of a definite organism. One of them whisked past my very face. I was conscious of a cold, clammy contact, but their composition was so unsubstantial that I could not connect with them with any thought of physical danger, any more than the beautiful bell-like creatures which had preceded them. There was no more solidity in their frames than in the floating spume of a broken wave. But a more terrible experience was in store for me. Floating downwards from a great height, there came a purplish patch of vapour, small as I saw it at first, but rapidly enlarging as it approached me, until it appeared to be hundreds of square feet in size. Though fashioned of some transparent, jelly-like substance, it was nonetheless of much more definite outline and solid consistence than anything which I had seen before. There were more traces, too, of a physical organisation, especially two vast, shadowy, circular plates upon either side, which may have been eyes, and a perfectly solid white projection between them, which was curved and cruel as the beak of a vulture. The whole aspect of this monster was formidable and threatening. 
and it kept changing its colour from a very light mauve to a dark, angry purple, so thick that it cast a shadow as it drifted between my monoplane and the sun. On the upper curve of its huge body, there were three great projections, which I can only describe as enormous bubbles, and I was convinced, as I looked at them, that they were charged with some extremely light gas, which served to buoy up the misshapen and semi-solid mass in the rarefied air. The creature moved swiftly along, keeping pace easily with the monoplane, and for twenty miles or more it formed my horrible escort, hovering over me like a bird of prey which is waiting to pounce. Its method of progression, done so swiftly that it was not easy to follow, was to throw out a long, glutinous streamer in front of it, which in turn seemed to draw forward the rest of its writhing body, so elastic and gelatinous was it that never for two successive minutes was it the same shape, and yet each change made it more threatening and loathsome than the last. I knew that it meant mischief. Every purple flush of its hideous body told me so. The vague, goggling eyes which were always turned upon me were cold and merciless with their viscid hatred. I dipped the nose of my monoplane downwards to escape it. As I did so, as quick as a flash, there shot out a long tentacle from this mass like a floating blubber, and it fell as light and sinuous as a whiplash across the front of my machine. There was a loud hiss as it lay for a moment across the hot engine, and it whisked itself into the air again, while the huge flat body drew itself as if in sudden pain. I dipped to a vol peak, but again a tentacle fell over the monoplane and was shorn off by the propeller as easy as it might cut through a smoke wreath. A long, gliding, sticky, serpent-like coil came from behind and caught me around the waist, dragging me out of the fuselage. I tore at it, my fingers sinking into the smooth, glue-like surface, and for an instant I disengaged myself, but only to be caught around the boot by another coil, which gave me a jerk that tilted me almost onto my back. As I fell over, I blazed off both barrels of my gun, though, indeed, it was like attacking an elephant with a pea shooter to imagine that any human weapon could cripple that mighty bulk. And yet I aimed better than I knew, for, with a loud rapport, one of the great blisters upon the creature's back exploded with the puncture of the buckshot. It was very clear that my conjecture was right, that these vast, clear bladders were distended with some lifting gas. For in an instant, the huge, cloud-like body turned sideways, writhing desperately to find its balance, while the white beak snapped and gaped in horrible fury. But already I had shot away on the steepest glide that I dared to attempt, my engine still full on, the flying propeller and the force of gravity shooting me downwards like an aerolite. For behind me I saw a dull, purplish smudge growing swiftly smaller and merging into the blue sky behind it. I was safe out of the deadly jungle of the outer air. Once out of danger, I throttled my engine, for nothing tears a machine to pieces quicker than running on full power from a height. It was a glorious spiral vol plane 
from nearly 8 miles of altitude, first to the level of the silver cloud bank, then to that of the storm cloud beneath it, and finally in the beating rain to the surface of the earth. I saw the Bristol Channel beneath me as I broke from the clouds, but having still some petrol in my tank, I got 20 miles inland before I found myself stranded in a field half a mile from the village of Ashcombe. There, I got three tons of petrol from a passing motor car, and at ten minutes past six that evening, I alighted gently on my own home meadow at Devise. After such a long journey as no mortal upon earth has ever yet taken and lived to tell the tale, I have seen the beauty, and I have seen the horror of the heights, and a greater beauty, or greater horror, than that is not within the ken of man. And now, it is my plan to go once again, before I give my results to the world. My reason for this, is that I must surely have something to show by the way of proof, before I lay such a tale before my fellow men. It is true that others will soon follow, and will confirm what I have said, and yet I should wish to carry conviction from the first. Those lovely iridescent bubbles of the air should not be hard to capture. They drift slowly upon their way, and the swift monoplane could intercept their leisurely course. It is likely enough that they would dissolve in the heavier layers of the atmosphere, and that some small heap of amorphous jelly might be all that I showed that should bring back to earth with me, and yet something there would surely be by which I could substantiate my story. Yes, I will go, even if I run the risk by doing so. These purple horrors would not seem to be numerous. It is probable that I shall not see one. If I do, I shall dive at once. At the worst, there is always the shotgun and my knowledge of... Here, a page of the manuscript is unfortunately missing. On the next page is written in large, straggling writing. 43,000 feet. I shall never see the earth again. They are beneath me. Three of them. God help me. It's a dreadful death to die. Such, in its entirety, is the Joyce Armstrong statement. Of the man, nothing has since been seen. Pieces of his shattered monoplane have been picked up in the preserves of Mr. Bud Lushington upon the borders of Kent and Sussex, within a few miles of the spot where the notebook was discovered. If the unfortunate aviator's theory is correct that this air jungle, as he called it, existed only over the southwest of England, then it would seem that he had fled from it at the full speed of his monoplane, but had been overtaken and devoured by these horrible creatures at some spot in the outer atmosphere above the place where the grim relics were found. The picture of that monoplane skimming down the sky, with the nameless terrors flying as swiftly beneath it and cutting it off, always from the earth while they gradually closed in upon their victim, 
is one upon which a man who valued his sanity would not prefer to dwell. There are many, as I am aware, who still jeer at the facts which I have here set down. But even they must admit that Joyce Armstrong has disappeared, and I would commend to them his own words. This notebook may explain what I am trying to do, and how I lost my life in doing it. But no drivel about mysteries or accidents, if you please. Well, watch the skies. They're up there, waiting. If you would like to support this program, might I direct your attention to our gift shop, where you will find links to where you can buy our anthology series, Curiosities, in Kindle and trade paperback formats. Visit us online at gallerycurious.com slash store to see all of our past editions. They lack yours truly, but I'm sure you'll make it through somehow. Do take care of one another and visit us next time at the Gallery of Curiosities. Gallery of Curiosities is produced under a Creative Commons International 4.0 non-commercial attribution no derivatives license. Copyrights remain with the authors. Our theme song is Ashes Ashes by Deus Ex Vapora Machina. This episode was produced in November of 2020. For full show notes, visit us on the web at gallerycurious.com.